but I think they understand the ethics of it. We're now a bit more aware of the risks of publishing the glamorous research, which isn't right. You know, lives can be threatened, patient care can be really poor, can have massive impacts on human life by reporting this glamorous science which you've spun. Adrian Aldcroft has been the editor-in-chief of the medical journal BMJ Open for three years. Adrian has been an editor for 12 years, working at PLOS One and the BMC series before taking over BMJ Open. Prior to becoming an editor, Adrian's own research background was in fMRI studies of the human brain. On this episode of the EMBO podcast, Adrian was joined by Thomas Lemberger, EMBO's deputy head of scientific publications, to discuss open science, preprints, and the role of peer review in basic and clinical research. Welcome to the EMBO podcast. Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory launched MedArchive with BMJ's collaboration in 2019. In December of the same year, EMBO and ASAP Bio launched Review Commons. Open Science, Preprints, and Peer Review were about to undergo a massive stress test. If we start very broadly, what would you say were the high points of open science during the COVID-19 pandemic? I mean, it was a fascinating time, um, and, and it was a blessing to have preprints, uh, especially MedArchive for us. They are just um, gotten up and running, like you said, six months prior, um, because for whatever reason, when lockdowns hit, our, our submissions to BMJ Open went up over 50% um, and over a thousand manuscripts a month. I think that was a combination of, you know, we're a medical journal, there's a pandemic going on, there's a lot of research on this happening, but also a combination of that and researchers being at home, writing up their papers because their, their other research projects were put on hold. But the COVID papers that came into us, if it wasn't from Med Archive, I wouldn't have known what to do with them because they were very timely, often, built on less data than we would expect in a full research study, but obviously still really important from a public health perspective um, and in relation to the pandemic. But it would take us months to to review something like this. We'd want to be careful about it. Um, so the fact that MedArchive existed, even though I think what MedArchive was trying to achieve shifted a lot with the pandemic, you know, prior to that it was a place to put your articles before submitting it to a scientific journal. It wasn't intended to be in the press or made public. But with COVID, it took on a whole, whole different uh, responsibility where we could send those papers, which were important, but maybe not fully fleshed research studies still quite early. We could send them to MedArchive. And it was just, for me, it was exactly the right place for them. It gets them up there quickly. And, and it gets it out there, and, and then a journal can take on uh, the responsibility of reviewing it in detail such that it's elevated to the status of, um, not fact, but uh, but trustworthy enough to publish in a journal. So yeah, really, really fascinating time for us. Yeah, and thinking back on it, it you know, there's a lot as I'm sure you can relate, a lot for us to deal with, everyone having to shift to working from home and, and shifting to doing everything online. And I think in all senses, you know, with with Zoom and the online recording and uh, along with moving to um, preprints and open data, we 
obviously we weren't as prepared as we should have been for the pandemic, but we did have things in place such that we could manage. I think we were really lucky to have uh, the preprints in place and um, really putting them to the test. You know, obviously preprints having a number of submissions, which six months before they wouldn't have dreamt possible and, and struggling to cope with that volume of submissions. But I think it's amazing that it worked as well as it did and it wasn't perfect, but it was definitely a big a big um, learning experience for everyone. I think there's one, one case that I find absolutely astonishing, which is while everyone was debating the, uh, well, it's a still ongoing debate on the origins of, of, of the virus, um, there was a paper sitting at Scientific Reports from October to June, essentially, that had photographs of live animals in the Wuhan market, um, which which took almost a year uh, to get published, which is, as, as we know, entirely normal for, for a scientific paper. So if if something screamed um, urgency and, and this should have been pre-printed, and it, it, because regardless of what the central point of the paper was, what everybody would have liked to see is there are photographs of live animals in the market which was a, a central question in, in, in the discussion. And, and what do you think um, went wrong from the point of view of, of open science and preprints during the year? To these years, actually, I shouldn't speak as if it's over. Sorry. Um, that's a good question. I guess from my perspective as the editor of a journal, ideally we would do things as quickly or nearly as quickly as you can do them on preprints. So, I mean, it's a huge benefit that we had different places for different things. And I think there's a lot of education of the public just to teach people what preprints meant. You know, it's not quite as good as an article, but it's still something and it's great that it's out there quickly. But I wouldn't, we still want uh, that article if it's important, if it's true, to be published in a journal as quickly as possible. So I think there was a risk that, oh, it's gone to a preprint, it's gone to MedArchive. Now we can take our time with things. But there was that confusion over, you know, they look the same. Uh, what is the difference between a preprint on MedArchive and an article online in BMJ Open? I think that gets quite confusing because at face value, they are the same and you really need to dig deeper. So I think, yeah, for me, we could never do things quickly enough. My team's grown a lot in these last few years. I think when COVID hit, we had six people as editors. Now we have more than twice that. So we needed to grow. We needed to grow quickly. Yeah. So even though MedArchive and preprints have been massively useful, we weren't really genuinely prepared um, for something like this. And we should have been. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion that something like this was inevitable and, there, you know, monkeypox is happening now. Are we prepared for that even after this learning experience of COVID? Sort of, but not really. And I guess it's a question of resources because things like this aren't going to happen often, but they will happen. Um, and I think we do need to take a perspective, especially with a medical journal, where we're really at the heart of everything, um, that we do need to be prepared for events like this when they happen again, and they will happen again. A debatable but plausible idea behind the publication of manuscripts before peer review was the notion that scientists should be able to critically read a manuscript on their own. What became apparent during the pandemic was that if a topic was under a spotlight, not everyone reading a preprint would have the benefit of scientific training. When it came to can you promote 
preprints in the media, that became a really complicated and a really important issue because I, I was a little bit involved with MedArchive at the launch. And, and one of the principles is don't discuss this publicly on social media. Don't discuss it with the news. This is still not peer reviewed. But that did shift, as we all know, and, and top news programs on the radio and in television started reporting preprints. And responsible journalists would always add the caveat saying, this has not been peer reviewed yet, but we still think it's really important. So yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I think the intention of preprints and MedArchive did shift with the pandemic and it did shift um, such that we know it is important to make some of this information public um, with that caveat that has not been peer reviewed, but we can't hold fast to this, don't promote it in the media. So yeah, so I think it was education to the public, but also education for us. And I guess broadly, it's just making sure that whatever venue you're using to communicate this information, it's fit for purpose and that can change over time. Um, so we didn't have a, have a pandemic going like COVID when MedArchive was launched. So it was more important to not report things in the media. And then you need to balance those risks and those benefits when the pandemic hit. And we decided, and, and the media decided it wasn't really our call, that yes, it's okay to publicize this information because it is of importance, but does need to be um, stated with that caveat. And I think, I think the public, definitely um, responsible journalists, understood what we were trying to do. And, you know, with the Trump presidency, misinformation was everywhere. And I think we're all learning how to filter what's real and what's not real. Some people are doing a better job than others, but I think that's that needs to be an ongoing um, discussion that we have. And I think it's really important for us as editors, as publishers, as journalists to um, be at the forefront of that discussion. Although preprint servers like BioArchive or MedArchive have space for comments, the authors we've spoken to for the Emble podcast and the Review Commons blog all say that they seldom, if ever, get post-publication feedback directly on these platforms. Preprints do generate discussion, often a lot of it, including high-quality scientific interactions that would qualify as post-publication peer review. But these are almost exclusively either through personal communication or social media. It should be noted that this conversation with Adrian and Thomas was recorded before the recent changes at Twitter and what many have termed the Mastodon migration. Social media is very, very powerful. And on the one hand, I think even carrying out the most formal peer review in a journal, you're trying to have a conversation. You're trying to have a conversation between the author and the reviewer. Um, and hopefully it's a civil and constructive conversation. But even in, in peer review, people get take things personally and it goes off topic. But the same happens on social media. And, and for me, any information, any conversation is useful. But for whatever reason, Twitter, social media, it's driven more by popularity. People don't put as much thought into their tweets as they will if they're doing a peer review. So the context, I do think, matters. And I think there is a gradient where comments on an article aren't as valuable as the formal peer review that a journal might do. Um, rapid responses on articles are probably somewhere in between because they are moderated. And then you have social media, which is a bit more of the Wild West. And sometimes that's not a bad thing. And because people are passionate and it is, there are emotive aspects to COVID. I mean, it affected all aspects of our lives. 
lockdowns. Some people agree, some people very much disagreed. And the truth is somewhere in the middle and there's a lot of room for debate there. So in some ways, the discussion on social media is really valuable, but it does get out of control. And I think that's why editors are really important because they, they serve as a judge. They take all of this information in, um, whether it's from peer reviewers or what's happening on social media, and they decide, is this useful? Is this really contributing to the conversation? Is this person trustworthy or are they conflicted? And you come up with some sort of solution for the article. You know, how, how does this really inform the article? Should we make any changes? Should we post a correction or make a retraction? But I think the editor's in the best position to understand context and and to weigh the different um, discussions that are happening. I guess it's challenging, and and that's something we're all trying to cope with. Is is with journals which carry out peer review, the discussion continues after you publish it, and you need to know for whatever reason, the discussion that happens post peer review is is valued less than what happens to actually um, publish the article. And I think that that needs to change somewhat. And I think preprints tie into that where things are posted immediately and the discussion happens more in real time. Thomas Lemberger originally trained as a molecular biologist at the University of Lausanne. Thomas joined EMBO to launch the open access journal Molecular Systems Biology. He's the project leader for EMBO's platform for curated peer review of preprints, Review Commons. Review Commons began offering authors the option to post their refereed preprint to MedArchive in July of 2020. It had been posting them to BioArchive from day one. In the clinical and medical field, I just am interested to, to hear your thoughts about the focus of the peer review process. At EMBO, we have sort of basic research uh, journals and, and we are very... Um, acutely aware of, of things like the novelty of a discovery, the conceptual advance and, and, and the depth of, of the characterization and, and so on and so on. And I just wonder if, you know, what, what is the case in the, in the medical field, if the focus of, of peer review is maybe slightly different or, or you know, what, what do you pay attention to? I mean, there's there's so many things that, that tie into um, what we want peer review to do. Um, I think above all, and, and I, I sometimes phrase it as we want to make sure that what we publish isn't wrong. <laughs> it's never going to be 100% right. It's not an exact science. The important thing is that authors are cautious with their interpretation. Um, so we're very much proponents of being upfront about limitations not overstating your findings. I think often researchers really want to sell their research to us and, 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 and say that this is groundbreaking and clinical practice needs to change from this observational study. Um, but for us, we know it's an observational study. It's useful. It adds to the evidence base, but it's not going to change everything. And that's what we want to see. We don't want to see you saying that this is going to have a big impact. We want you to say this is going to have small impact, maybe not even that much of an impact. Maybe the impact is it will lead to a, a better study or a bigger study or a clinical trial or something like that. So that for me is important. And I think that's what I try to communicate when I talk to authors is that you're not trying to sell me this research. You're trying to publish something which is useful and accurate. So for me, I'm not a doctor, but I'm a researcher and I'm a reader and, I, and, and I'm a patient. I'm, I'm a member of the public and I want 
papers not to be written for specialized, only researchers can understand it. I want it to be well reported. I want it to be understandable to patients, um, to caregivers, whoever has the motivation to understand this piece of work that it might be meaningful to that person. I want them to understand it. So I try to emphasize writing with as little jargon as possible in plain language whenever possible. And trying to communicate that to peer reviewers can be challenging, but that is what we're looking for. And editors can also provide their own comments on this area. Mm -hmm. So so how, how, do, how do authors react to this sort of strongly encouraged modesty about the claims uh, is it is it less of an issue maybe in the medical field that there are strong egos that that want actually to make big discoveries that are going to change the face of the world or is it a cultural difference with with the fundamental research or basic research i should say yeah i think there's a huge number of differences between authors and and yeah i worked in research I guess it was um, 15 years ago now, um, 20 years ago even. And I remember it being about telling a story, selling your research. If you want to be published in the top journals, you need to really emphasize what's interesting, not do anything. Well, I think it is unethical, but you know, not fudge your numbers, but to emphasize what in your data is interesting. Um, whereas for me now, we don't want to do that. We, we're very strict about reporting things according to how you plan to report them in your study protocol, or as I say, stating limitations and being upfront. And I think there is a shift just talking to authors. I think it's the early career researchers who are on board with this because they can never, they struggle to get published in the Lancet or or the BMJ. Um, so they see, you know, I want to publish this. And, and also, I think they understand the ethics of it. Um, we know, we're now a bit more aware of the risks of publishing the glamorous research, which isn't right. You know, lives can be threatened, patient care can be really poor, can have massive impacts on human life by reporting this glamorous science, which you've spun or fabricated some way. So yeah, I think it can be challenging for authors to consolidate those two sides of the story because ultimately you want to be successful in your life, you want to get the promotion, um, you want to get a good job, and to do that you need to publish in the big journals, but at the same time, ultimately we care the most about ethical reporting and patient care. Yeah, so going back to the issue of what we want peer review to accomplish, um, for me it's it's helping authors make their work better um, to help them report their research. And I think a big emphasis for me um, is publishing work in countries and to authors who don't have the resources that we have in Europe, uh, in the UK, and, and getting them peer reviewers who can then just help them point them in the right direction and, and, and provide them with constructive criticism and help them get published in a journal like BMJ Open. I think that's a really fantastic thing. Yeah, so I think there's different places to go for different researchers, but we'd like to hopefully tie that all together and, and emphasize quality. So the BMJ publishes bigger studies, more impactful studies than BMJ Open, but we do have the same principles in terms of ethical reporting. So yeah, there's that constant constant between us i think mm -hmm. what is in there for the reviewers you you participated to a workshop that we organized at embo on this theme of uh, academic credit to reviewers and if i remember well you had this this wonderful quote that peer review matters really and 
depending what a, a reviewer says or writes in, in the report, it may affect actually the uh, patients uh, at the end of the day. And you also just mentioned that, you know, the role of the peer review process in, in, in a medical field is, is to make sure that something is not wrong, at least. Um, because, of course, wrong findings can, can be very toxic. So what is in there for the reviewers? Are they accountable if they say something wrong, if they make a mistake? Are they accountable? Are, are we going to sue them? You, you wrote a wrong review. And sort of what kind of reward do they, do they receive to actually make the right call, which might be sometimes very difficult and time-consuming? Yeah, no, that's that's a big question and a big challenge because it's a huge amount of responsibility that we're putting on um, these peer reviewers. Like as we discussed earlier, it's all just a conversation, whether that's on social media or a peer review. But the peer review for the actual journal is is much more important and it's elevated and it's a huge responsibility. But as you say, there's not a big reward. I mean, I think as much as possible. You'd like to think that the reward has been uh, an active participant in the publication of this article. And for us, we want to make sure that that's transparent and clear, which is why we use Open Peer Review on BMJ Open. So we publish the review alongside the article and we publish the names of the reviewers so they get credit. But on the flip side, that opens them up to criticism as much as the authors in some ways which which can be challenging but i guess i guess ultimately that does just really emphasize the responsibility of the peer reviewer um, and a good peer reviewer knows this they want to take on that responsibility hopefully they like the fact that we're being transparent and and posting their review alongside and there are tools available so orchid you can now see um, where you've reviewed so getting Bigger recognition for reviewers is something that we're working on, but it is it is a real challenge because we do see, I mean, I don't know what percent of medical journals use open peer review, but it's very, very small. And you do see and it's and it's small because it's it's challenging and a lot of a lot of journals don't want to take that on. But you will see social media saying how how does this count as a review on this paper because it's short or something like that. And and you know, that happens on all journals and, and a short review is not necessarily a bad review. I always like to make that point. Um, but yeah, you do open yourself up to criticism. Yeah, so any any kind of incentives, author, a reviewer sometimes say they want um, to be paid to do these reviews. And the BMJ has tried that in the past, but reviewers weren't that open to it because you'll never pay them um, as much as they would be paid for their regular job. So it seems small in comparison. So yeah, that's something that we're really struggling struggling with at the moment. It is hard to find reviewers, especially when we have discussed the volume of science and the volume of these research manuscripts has increased. So we, we need more and more reviewers and it is challenging to find them. We are coming up with new incentives like the open peer review, like the ORCID um, mentioning it, but it, it is it is always going to be difficult. Yeah, and I can imagine um, with reviewer commons, I think where the reviewer is doing their review definitely impacts how likely they are to do it. I think the BMJ has an easier time finding reviewers than BMJ Open, but I think being a reader of that journal does make it easier. But yeah, I think it's a challenge for all 
for all, yeah, yeah. For all areas in publishing. So, so to, it's true that it is difficult to find reviewers, and, and I think it's it's often um, not appreciated how, how much effort it is to actually recruit good reviewers and to select them and, and convince them to deliver a, a, at the end of the day. And how do you see a little bit what, what we are trying uh, with review comments, which is to review the papers for a very good set of journals? So, so the the motivation of the of the reviewers in principle is there, but to do that before submission to the journal, such that the journals then do not engage into repeated or, or redundant rounds of of review and rejecting the paper and then reviewing from scratch, and and sometimes you have twelve or, or even more reviewers having been involved in, in the publication of a paper. Do, do you see maybe your journal once um, uh, applying this kind of, of, uh, of system or how, what's your vision about that? Yeah, so for me, receiving a review alongside a, a submission, which has been reviewed in review comments or in another journal or in another preprint server is useful. It's always useful to have information for an editor. You can use that information, you can disregard it depending on all of the context and all of the factors around it. But for me, you know, we just discussed how difficult it is to find reviewers. If somebody can help us out with that, that's a really positive thing for me. The challenges we've had from various, there's been a number of um, publishers who have tried something like this to get a review on a manuscript before submitting it to a journal using various different methods. The challenges for us have been when we can't see the reviewer's name. So open peer review is a core principle of BMJ Open. So if, if we don't see the reviewer's name, we can't really use it. Again, it can be informative for us, but it's not. Um, we, we want to have that discussion potentially with the reviewer and we want to know um, if there are any competing interests. That's really the most important thing to us. It could be a highly conflicted report and we just don't know it. And the other challenge is BMJ Open emphasizes certain qualities of a manuscript to decide on publication. So as I said, the completeness of the reporting, um, whether a reviewer has assessed the statistics, certain papers we we have a more formal uh, statistical review if it's going to directly impact patient care. Um, so sometimes it's hard for us to know. And I think I think looking at review commons, you're covering a lot of those things, which is fantastic. I guess the risk for me is thinking is authors taking the perspective that they've had two positive reviews in review commons or wherever. How is this journal not going to publish it? Whereas an editor, I might want to add to that information, get my own review, or I might notice something that the reviewers haven't noticed and I want to reject that. I'm not just going to disregard my own thoughts because it's had positive reviews elsewhere. So yeah, as I say, any information is useful for us, but we also want to have our own say and our own analysis to make sure that it conforms to BMJ Open, which even though we say we don't emphasize novelty in advance when we publish anything which was well reported and sound, we do still have um, certain elements which are really important to BMJ Open, which might mm -hmm. not be important mm -hmm. in other areas. Yeah, so the, it's interesting you mentioned this sort of configuration of having positive reports from the reviewers but then having an editor who says, mm, from my point of view, actually it doesn't belong to the scope or to the editorial level. And so it, it brings us a little bit to, to something I wanted to discuss with you, which is now the role of the editors or, you know, uh, from there, the role of the journals. 
now that we have MedArchive, that we have BioArchive, that we even have refereed preprint from review comments with a preprint, three reviews, and even the, the reply from the authors, some are asking, well, what is the role of the journals? And so you, you just mentioned the editors sometimes plays the arbiter. It has its own or her own uh, vision of, of the scope of the journal and, and its uh, selectivity. And, and there is also the issue of, of conflict of interest and, and checking that the reviewers are indeed those independent uh, experts that we that we, we we would like to have. So, what's your your vision of the role of the journals, and maybe also as a chief editor of um, uh, BMG Open, what is the role of the selectivity of of journals? Is that important, or is it condemned to to disappear? I guess. BMJ Open is sort of, I do think of it as being on a continuum. We're not a journal as thorough as the BMJ, as the Lancet, but at the same time, we do carry out peer review more so than reviewer commons or, or preprint, which just takes comments. But for me, the role of the editor is to to weigh the information, as you said, an arbiter, a judge, um, to decide, is this something that's important? And to also, I guess, it's a lot of responsibility, because ultimately I'm responsible for what BMJ Open publishes, which for me is is a really positive thing. I like, I like that responsibility. I like to say that we publish this paper, which is in the news, which is having that importance. But it's also potentially you know, quite scary because if we publish something which is incorrect, it's on me. So for me, I think journals, publishers do add trustworthiness onto things because you're not just taking almost an AI or machine learning approach where you have these two reviews and they're both positive. So you say, well, there's nothing negative here. We should put it up. It's not, and it's also not just about publishing or not publishing. It's about making compromises, completing the reporting, are you, are you being clear with your limitations? If not, state it. Or if you have two reviewers who disagree and reviewers also disagree, not just taking one side or allowing the authors to make a decision, but trying to incorporate every perspective into that final article. I think that's a big responsibility for editors. And I, I think there's a risk of that being lost if we were to do away with journals like that. And there's also a big role of journals when it comes to disseminating and, and providing impact to research. It's not just editors involved. We have a press team, we have publishers. And I'm really proud to work at BMJ. I think we've built a really fantastic brand because we are seen as being trustworthy, reliable, ethical, doing things like open peer review. Um, so I think that adds a lot of value to the work. Several initiatives do exist, including but in no way limited to review commons to organize the peer review process of preprints. These vary a lot in the degree of editorial involvement, if independent editors are involved at all. Thomas also leads an EMBO effort to curate different preprints from diverse peer review platforms, the early evidence base, which you can consult online. EMBO Press, Review Commons, and BMJ Open all have transparent peer review processes. But at BMJ Open, reviewers are also asked to sign their reviews. For us, and I think medicine is different from molecular biology, where there are conflicts of interest related to drugs, devices, big issues within the medical community, there might be a strong proponent for or against lockdowns, for example. So for us, 
it is necessary, I think, ultimately, for us to operate the journal using the principles we want. I think we do need to have the names of the reviewers. And as I said earlier, we want them to have their credit when we post the article and the peer reviews. It's good to see that person's name. But yeah, there is that flip side. It opens them up to criticism. Thankfully, I've not heard any real stories of these reviewers having these negative consequences that people fear. I mean, it might happen, I've just not heard it, but it seems to me that people respect the reviewer if they've got uh, an opinion, um, which might lead to an article's rejection. And I think, like I said, in the evidence for open peer review, people are more positive, people are more constructive. So it leads, you know, passing on your name to the authors does lead you to be more constructive, more positive. Yeah, and I'm sure there are cases where reviewers have had negative consequences, but for us, it's kind of the risks and the rewards for it. And I think based on the nature of medicine and how how medicine works in society today, we think it's a really positive thing to have have that name of the reviewer attached to it for full transparency. But it is it is a difficult decision and and that could even change over time. I think when we made the decision to use open peer review at BNJ, it was before social media was was what it is today and we could never have foreseen um, just how powerful and how stressful uh, Twitter can be for a person if they're if they're criticizing somebody so yeah I think we don't have any plans of changing the way we do things but we're always we are taking a data driven approach so if if we do find that we should change things we would we would change them um, but yeah it is important to keep doing research on peer review and that's something I'm quite passionate about. And we do use BMJ Open to study different interventions in terms of peer reviews, so having people check uh, the reporting as an extra step, um, having an assessment of spin in the abstract and, and running all kinds of studies. Um, I think that's really important. I know EMPO does similar work, which is really fantastic. Um, yeah, I think I think it's important to take a data-driven approach and it's important to keep studying peer review and how these variables impact things ultimately. Um, and as I say, these things do change over time. So what we found 10 years ago might not be true today. You, you mentioned that um, the, the transparent peer review or, or the open peer review result often on a tone that is more constructive and, and, and maybe helpful. What's your experience, you know, as an editor now with many years of experience on what would be the, your recommendations to reviewers about the tone of a, of a review? If you have criticism, should they be really robust and very clear or should you exert some modesty diplomacy or what has this any importance on the side of the authors and maybe also on the side of the of the editors? Yeah, I, I emphasize diplomacy uh, when it comes to these things because people can get really passionate about it and nobody likes being criticized, um, especially when, when it's their work that they're doing. So it is difficult because sometimes it is a piece of work could have an impact and we want to be clear that it should be rejected from a reviewer. They want to emphasize that and not be overly polite, such that an editor um, maybe not reading enough detail sees it as being positive when it's in fact negative. But ultimately, 
there is a lot of diplomacy involved, especially with open peer review. So they are going to know who you are. But I think the world needs a bit more being polite and, and help, trying to be constructive and helpful rather than being critical and trying to show off how much you know or how much more you might know about a topic than the other person. It's not about that. It's about improving. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree with that. So they, they have a respectful tone that is acceptable on the other side is kind of fundamental. But, but just to play a little bit the, the devil's advocate, I found as an editor, it is it can be easier to overrule negative comments and to say, well, you know, all these comments criticize this and that, but actually for our journalists, it's not absolutely necessary and we can resolve this, you know, in a, in a sort of... Um, um, a compromise way but as an editor it is much more difficult to overrule positive comments so if you have a, a very positive reviews on a paper where as an editor you are quite critical it, it, it becomes very difficult to overrule in this direction have you made this experience too? I think in some ways I've well, yeah, I guess, I guess the extremes the extremes are interesting. I think if we have one negative reviewer who points out a fundamental flaw, even if I quite like the paper, if there's no changing that flaw, if the research question is flawed, the methods can't support the data, then no matter how much other positive information there is, uh, um, and I agree with what the reviewer is saying, we will reject it. Yeah, at the same time, well, if, if I do have an overly positive review, I'm always a bit sceptical of it. Uh, for me, I, t I tend to like the reviews, which are written fairly neutrally and in a way that's that's designed to help the authors. I think that's more meaningful to me than somebody whose tone is, is either very negative or very positive. One of the questions we really often ask is if if you are um, if you're having a positive experience with a refereed preprint, which is curated by a professional editor and the reviewers are highly qualified, um, and it's incorporated all of these reviewer cross comments features and so forth, is what is the role of a journal? Like why why do you need the journal? And and the answer they give broadly matches what you said is that well there's just too much information. And I need I need to aggregate uh, what I read somehow. I need I need a filter uh, for the unit, something that uh, that tells me what kind of audience this is relevant for. Is it for um, is it for a medical audience? Is it for you know dictyostelium uh, evolution of apoptosis field or something? Um, I, I need to find those, and and um, and and that's that's a lot trickier than than people who may who are not in science may may think. Um, and and it's something that affects the way they they look at the peer reviews, because what we get as well, one of the very surprising things for me when I joined the project was that more than people praising speed, which I think was really an early motivation for the Review Commons project, was just reducing waste in the peer review process. They like the tone of the reviews because they focus on on the content of the paper more than the fit for a journal. And and I, I think, and, and having worked with Thomas for a while now and having worked at a traditional journal uh, for a few years, I, I think that's really the editor's job is to, to decide, you know, given the scientific critique of the paper, is it a good fit for me, uh, for my journal, for my readers? 
And that, that really is an editorial task that should not be farmed out um, to the reviewers. And it affects the way people write their, their reviews. And, and the only other thing I would say, just as a PSA, because I, I, I always tell people, if you, if you are angry and, and you thought you, you spent time, it's, it's a lot of work reviewing a paper, reading a really bad piece of work. Be careful with the tone of your review, because you might be right, and it might be an important point, but what will end up is people discussing the tone of your review. <laughs> if it's personal or not personal, is it civil or not civil? And, and you may be saying something like, there's no control in this paper. But it may have made you so angry, right, that that you wrote something, uh, you know, along the lines of the authors are idiots or something like that, and then it becomes a discussion not about the content. It doesn't. It's it takes the discussion away from what you think is important to discuss, and it gives people another angle um, to to disregard what could be in in the middle of a lot of vitriol, a valid a valid critique of the work. Yeah, there's there's no benefit to anyone. I think um, if you're taking a really harsh negative tone the only benefit is that it allows you to vent your anger to somebody but but really it's not gonna like you said it's not gonna help get the paper rejected it's just gonna have the editor take the review less seriously and obviously it's not gonna help your relationship with the authors if you ever run into them in a conference so i think like, like anything you know it is it is a job you need to be professional um about it and and be conscious of that but I do think the openness in, improves that a lot because most people are in, embarrassed. To, even if it is anonymous, they they you know they don't want to be seen like that in a, in public. And I think it goes for authors as well when they write their appeals. So the advice I usually give people is have a notebook, not not your computer, an actual notebook, and write the letter you want to write and talk about the reviewer's mother and what they may or may not have done in unnatural acts. And then you just get it out and then tear it up and flush it down the toilet. And then write on your computer the thing you need to write to have a professional interaction, as you say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah, I always, I always um, advise authors, don't respond immediately. <laughs> give it, give it a night. Go, go to the pub for a night, and then, and then work on uh, a much more polite uh, response uh, in the morning. To find out more about BMJ Open's transparent peer review process, visit bmjopen.bmj.com. To explore the Review Commons refereed preprint platform, which also features public posting of reviews and author responses, visit our webpage. Thank you for listening to the EMBO Podcast. Mm -hmm.